Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Life Lessons from King David, with a message entitled, God's Charter for the Human Race. So turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We live in a world of incredible beauty, in a world that reflects the wisdom, the eternal power, and the divine nature of the one who made all things. But of course, we also live in a world that has been tragically bent and marred and twisted by sin. You know, at this moment, all creation groans as it has for now been subjected to futility. The story of the Bible is the story of God's promise to deliver the human race from the ruin of sin. And the Bible is not a collection of interesting and fascinating stories and characters. Rather, the Bible is but one story from beginning to end. It's the story of an altogether lovely and glorious God and his plan to rescue a group of men and women from their sins. And like all good stories, there are several points where the drama hinges. That is, it is the place where the movement of the story reaches an important climax. And when you read through the Old Testament, there are four important chapters upon which everything hinges. The first is Genesis 3. That's the story of the fall of the human race, ruined by rebellion against its creator. But Genesis 3 is also the story of a promise, as God promises to send a deliverer into the world who will crush the head of Satan and liberate a great company of people. The second hinge point is Genesis chapter 15. That's the chapter where Abraham goes for a walk with God, and God promises Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that through him, all the earth is going to be blessed. That's when Abraham simply believes God, and God credits his faith to him as righteousness. The third hinge point is in Exodus chapter 20, and that's the encounter that Abraham's descendants have with God at Mount Sinai. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments, the expression of God's righteousness. This is what God expects of the human race, but this also is what the good life looks like. It's a description of love both for God and for people. The fourth hinge point is 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's where we come today. It's not an understatement to say that this is one of the most significant chapters in the entire Bible. You know, we've been following the kingship of David, and after he's finally anointed as king over all Israel, he acts suddenly and decisively. He captures the city of Jerusalem, and he establishes it as the capital of the nation. But of course, he goes further. He realizes that Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the promise made in Deuteronomy 12. And so David establishes the city as the center point for the worship of the one true God. And then in a daring and courageous move, he wins a mighty victory over the Philistines, freeing Israel as a nation from being vassals of the Philistine kings. So for the first time since the days of Joshua, Israel feels established in the land. A promise made to Abraham now looks like it's going to come to pass. And with that, we move to 1 Samuel 7. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So by now, David has built a royal palace, and his royal status is, you know, beyond question. The royal capital is secure, and although the passage says that, 
you know, God has given him rest from all his enemies, we notice that, you know, in chapter 8, when it begins, there still is the final defeat of the Philistines. So we assume, therefore, that the rest of his enemies doesn't mean that he's defeated everyone in the land, but it does mean the enemies, especially the Philistines, no longer thinks it's safe to attack David. His power in the land has been firmly established, but he's restless. He's built a fine royal palace, at least it was for that time, and it was an expression of his status. But how could the man who is a man after God's own heart be satisfied when the palace of the king looks so much more impressive than the tabernacle? You know, it was Moses who, at the command of God, had ordered the tabernacle to be built as a centerpiece for Israel's worship. It was a tent, and while Israel was on the move, it was a wonderful symbol of God's abiding presence wherever they went. But now that Israel was settled in the land, the tabernacle now looks like the worship of God is being neglected and the honor of the king is being emphasized. See, David's heart ached at the thought of that, something he thought needed to be done. And so he calls the prophet Nathan to him. I want to build a house for God, says David. It's a grand temple. It's going to overshadow my house. Now, God hadn't ordered him to do that, but it was a mark of David's life that he wasn't content to just do the basics. He's seeking to honor and glorify his God. And so Nathan simply says, go for it, man. But the prophet himself has not yet heard from God. So let's keep on reading verses 4 to 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places that I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, the real issue here is one that is, if we think of it, that's really quite profound. You know, if there is to be a temple, the initiative for it will come from God and not from a human being. It's God who always determines how he is to be worshipped. Human beings aren't supposed to be able to do that. God decides what brings him glory. And by the way, that's a lesson for all of us to learn. In our worship, We're not inventing ways to worship. We're worshiping in the way in which God has determined we should worship. God takes the lead in our worship. We are in worship merely responding to his dictates. You know, David needn't feel embarrassed about not having a temple. He needs only to respond in obedience when God commands. But up till now, that's only the backdrop to the real eye-popping, jaw-dropping drama that now follows. So let's keep reading verses 8 to 11a. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. See, I want you to notice several things that should shock us back to reality. And notice the entire incident started with David thinking that he needed to do something for God. And notice God's response. I don't want you to do something for me. Notice in this passage, there's nothing 
that David has done for God. He hasn't done anything. Instead, it was God who did everything for David. He took him from the pasture land. He made him king of Israel. It was God who had cut off all David's enemies. And we need to stop here and consider this vital truth. You know, we all need to stop telling God what we've done for him, for in truth, we haven't done anything. And furthermore, we need to stop telling God what we'd like to do for him in the future, because that too is but nothing. But this is true. There's nothing that can be done for an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise God. He's sufficient in all his ways. He needs nothing from us. And he certainly doesn't need David to solve the problem of the tabernacle and give him a more splendid house. No, both for David and for us. It's about what God has done for us. You know, stop this pride in our own performance. It's denigrating to God. And instead of that, begin boasting about the mighty exploits of God, both in history and in his grace extended personally to you and I. And then, having said that, we now come to the heart of the matter. You know, verse 9 has God telling David, you have no idea what I'm about to do for you in the future. I will make you a great name like the great ones of the earth. And furthermore, I'm doing something for Israel, the people of God. In the future, I'm going to appoint a time when they will have peace from every possible enemy. Now, clearly that time has not yet come. Israel is still surrounded by plenty of enemies. And in the future, if you know your Bible well, you're going to know that there are so many things that they encounter, including the destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. You know, many hardships still lie before them. But God has determined a future for Israel, and there is hope. Again, reflect not on what you will do for God. Reflect on what the eternal promises that he has made to you look like. But in the case of David, the story was about to get even better, making this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important chapters of the Bible. Legacy can traditionally be defined as something that is passed on to entrusted hands. But it can be so much more. Your faith, your character, your core values, or the life you lead. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and you want it to continue and have an eternal impact on future generations, then you may wish to consider making a legacy donation. Advisors with Purpose is an independent Canadian financial ministry that Back to the Bible Canada partners with to help supporters create a plan for their estate according to their faith and values. Our partnership allows Back to the Bible Canada to offer an estate service through Advisors with Purpose for free. If you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose today at 1-866-336-3315. And to donate to the ministry today, visit us at backtothebible.ca. I'm reading now 2 Samuel 7, 11b to 16. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we notice that the passage we've been reading began with David's plan to build God a house, and God refuses. Instead, now God says to David, Look, you won't be building me a house. Instead, I'm going to be building you a house. So by now, one has to wonder what David was thinking. I mean, was he feeling a bit ashamed for having thought he could do something for God? Perhaps, but whatever shame he might have felt is by now overcome with feelings of amazement. I mean, God was going to build a house for David. Well, if David had a temple in mind to honor God, if this is what he was going to do for God, and indeed, If in his mind it was going to be a glorious temple, well, what then would it look like if God was going to build a house for him? And then God explains, when your lifespan is over, I will raise up an offspring or a seed who will come after you. Now, we need to stop there and consider that word seed. Yeah, it comes from the the word sperm, but it's a theological word. You know, in Genesis 3.15, we are told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis 12 and 15, We're told that Abraham's seed would be more than the sand on the seashore and that they would be a conduit of blessing to the whole world. And now we're told of David's seed. Well, what about his seed? Well, as we can see, the immediate seed of David, well, that seems to refer to a son who's going to yet be born to him. And we know from history that that man ends up being Solomon. And furthermore, we know that the house that David had in mind to build for God, well, it's going to be built, and Solomon, the seed of David, is going to build it. But then, that's when the startling words come. I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. See, it doesn't mean that Solomon isn't going to die, but it does mean that the kingly line of David is never going to cease. It's going to go on for eternity. Now, that in itself is already a staggering promise, but we're not yet done. I mean, getting back to Solomon, that is, the king that succeeded David, David is told he wasn't going to be a perfect man. Solomon was going to sin, and God was going to discipline him harshly, and not just Solomon, but but all the kings that would arise after David. But here's the promise. Unlike Saul, who lost his kingdom because of sin, David would never lose his kingship. Your throne will be established for eternal ages. Now, Now, pause and think. We've all heard the expression, long live the king, but but this is beyond all bounds. This is a promise of an eternal house, and David is left breathless. So now we come to 2 Samuel 7, 17 to 19, which is the heart of the chapter. It says, in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, when it says that David went in and sat before the Lord, I mean, we have to assume that he's gone to an appropriate place in the tabernacle, and for a long time he was quiet. I mean, his heart is overflowing. He needs time to simply assimilate what has just been said to him. And finally, he begins to speak to God. And the first is to express that he knows that he's not a great man. 
He, he was the youngest in his family and merely assigned to taking care of the sheep, and the family business was being done by the, by the leaders of his family. And yet God, according to his own wise and mysterious designs, has brought David from the sheepfold to be king of Israel, as well as the king who finally united all the tribes, fulfilling the promise of Deuteronomy 12, establishing the place where God was to be worshipped, and gave Israel for the first time a homeland in which they were not constantly threatened with extinction from their enemies. Who am I, says David, that you, O God, would have determined this as the future that you had for me? But now I see, says David, that this was still small stuff for you. See, this was merely the introduction to the real drama. You've spoken about my kingdom as far as I can see into the future. And then reflecting on that truth, the enormity of the significance of it, it suddenly descends on David. You know, the NIV translates what he says next as, is this your usual way of dealing with man? And you know, I think that's a very bad translation. The New American Standard Bible says, and this is the custom of man, but that translation is, I think, confusing at best. The HCSB says, this is your revelation for mankind, and I think that's a fairly good translation. Now, the Bible I'm using, the ESV, says this is instruction for mankind, or this is your instruction for the entire human race. Well, literally in the Hebrew, it says this is your Torah for Adam, or this is your law for the entire human race. See, David is saying, it has just occurred to me, the implication of what you've just told me. You've placed the entire human race under the law of my kingdom. Not only does my kingdom go on forever, the entire human race will come under the law that emanates out of my throne. Psalm 2 is a psalm that restates 2 Samuel 7 in poetry. So Psalm 2, 7-9 says, I will tell of the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is, anyone in the future who resists the kingdom of David will be broken to pieces like pottery that's dashed down onto the floor. It's not only an eternal kingdom, it's a kingdom that rules the nations of the earth. But how did David come to the conclusion after God has told him that his kingdom would endure forever? and that he now concludes that the entire earth would come under the rule of his throne. Well, clearly in what we've read, it wasn't God who told him that, or had he? You know, David, whatever else he was, was a man of Scripture. He knew that God told Adam and Eve that he, with his chosen man, would crush the head of the serpent. And God had told Abraham that through him would come a blessing to the entire earth. You know, God has spoken through Jacob that the scepter would never leave the tribe of Judah until the man comes to whom the ruler's staff rightfully belongs. And so David always believed that the salvation of the world could and would only come about in the way that God declared that it should happen. And so if God had just declared that this would be the one and only eternal kingdom, Then, what was the nature of that kingdom? And the answer had to be that this must be the kingdom that would eventually destroy Satan. You know, Matthew 21 records the remarkable incident of what happened on the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. The Jewish religious leaders had done everything they could to stop him, but it turns out 
They were trying to stop the rightful heir of David's throne from entering into Jerusalem. And so in expectation that the Messiah, the anointed one, or the rightful king of Israel and the rightful king of the world would come to his throne at Passover season, Jesus, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, enters into Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey. And the crowds, having heard of his miracles and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, burst out in this exuberance. They're excited beyond degree. And Matthew 21, verses 8 to 9 says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the whom? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This was the honor of the king, David, see David's son, who had come to establish a kingdom that was destined to rule the earth, a kingdom in which Satan would be defeated when wars and all sin would come to an end and the rightful ruler of the human race would sit on David's ancient throne and take his seat and his government would never end. That's what we have in 2 Samuel 7. It's really the charter for the entire human race, the charter for humanity. God would save the human race through the offspring of David. And the offspring of David would inherit an eternal kingdom of which all nations would one day bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Messiah, Lord and God, and rightful ruler over the creation. That's the Davidic covenant. And that's why we bend the knee to Jesus. He is the son of David and the rightful ruler of the earth. Thanks, John. Now, can I ask you to do something for me? Can you, can you share with us again the real significance behind 2 Samuel chapter 7? Yeah, there are in the Bible only several covenants that God makes. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the first covenant, which is a covenant that God would save his people by grace through faith. It's also the covenant that God makes to establish his own chosen people. The second great covenant that we find is at Mount Sinai. Uh, that's the one that we have at the giving of the Ten Commandments in which God declares his righteous rules for holy living. The third covenant that we find is right here in 2 Samuel 7. This is the covenant that God makes with David, and it is the covenant of the Messiah, that the Messiah will come from David and that he will rule over the whole earth from David's throne. The final covenant that we have in the Bible is, of course, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. This is one of the great covenants. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may sense a longing for a deeper, more consistent prayer life, and yet readily admit a shortfall to do so. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada wants to support your intentions. And we'd like to send to you as our gift, the booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. This free booklet contains 30 prayers personally selected by Dr. John from a prayer book entitled, The Valley of Vision. 30 Days of Prayer is not instruction about prayer, but provides for us an experience of prayer. It offers each of us a month of daily prayers to reflect upon God and offer the cry of our hearts. We believe this booklet will nurture and direct your desire 
to spend time in prayer with God. To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.